I don't know if you all are aware of this or not, but um, you know, amongst the pastors here is is a great privilege to be able to preach the first service of the year. Everybody uh, contests for this. Over the years, there's been uh, arm wrestling, there's been coin flips. It's a big deal, and so. Uh, those of you who are new to All Souls, you may not know, but it is customary for us to rise and all cheer for the person who won this. So please join me in congratulating Mike St. Dennis and the ability to preach the first service of the year. And I can even, I can hear it online too, man. People are fired up. Um, thank you for that welcome and introduction. Usually what I like, though, is like the music. I like the music. Uh, we used to always talk about walk-up music, like baseball players get to have, and what would your song be, and uh, everybody kind of had their pick. I don't remember what mine was, but I think I prefer that. So just every time I get up here from now on, Rick, you can introduce me. Um, I, I want to add um, just one or two things to the announcements with the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. So we're gonna kick this off a week from Tuesday. It's an eight week course. And uh, many of you, uh, about a third of the church or more, uh, has gone through Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And the concept of EHS is uh, the thesis, you cannot be spiritually mature unless you're emotionally mature, right? That spiritual maturity rightly defined is about you becoming uh, a more loving, gracious, sacrificial, trusting, joy-filled kind of person. That that's what God is up to in growing us up in the faith is about transforming us. Uh, so when I was growing up, I thought spiritual maturity was you just know, memorize the Bible. And so I looked up to people who memorized the Bible and there were, a lot of them were jerks. Uh, and, and I really practiced to memorize the Bible, and I was a real jerk. Um, and then this idea of what if God didn't come uh, to give you just head knowledge, but to change your heart and then change your relationships uh, with God, with yourself, and with others. And so EHS is about just diving deep into that to talk about how do we apply the gospel to these different parts of human life. And emotionally healthy relationships is uh, the same thing, but it's about practicing the skills of it. So how do we practice grace with people when we're in the middle of conflict? How do we practice um, dignity with others? How do we listen well to them? And again, all of these things that like, to be a fully formed, mature follower of Jesus is to be filled with the Spirit, to practice the fruit of the Spirit with one another. And it, these are some skills that will help to express that. So if you're interested in going through the class with us, it's the first time we're offering it. Um, so we're trying to keep the, the group relatively small, but we're going to kick that off in, in two weeks. So let me know if you want to hear more about that. The second announcement is we're going to dive back into our study of Mark next week. We spent four or five weeks this last fall looking at the book of Mark. And I think we got through seven words. And so we're going to pick that up. And then we're going to go through Mark off and on over the next couple years, taking breaks for Lent and for Advent again and things like that. Uh, and if, then if you're a, a community group or a small group leader, um, 
I have a copy of a discussion guide that I want to send home with you so that if any time over the next two weeks you choose to do a sermon discussion, you have a guide to go through it. It's the same guide that the women's small group on Thursday mornings is going to kick off doing soon. Um, And so if you want to get that for yourself too, you can see pictures of the book, uh, N.T. Wright's uh, commentary on Mark. As uh, Rick kind of alluded to, this is a, a special time, the first Sunday of the year, uh, and it's a time that now in our sermon, uh, I want to propose something to you. So sometimes uh, you hear a sermon, and you're like, oh, okay, uh, that I learned something new today, or you're, you're in the sermon, and you're like, I don't remember what they said, but I felt something today. Well, I want to propose that you uh, take a step to adopt something today. So actually really take a step, an action step towards something this morning. We are wrapping up the holiday season. It's the coming to the end of the 12 days of Christmas. And this first Sunday of the new year, the first Sunday after Christmas, is a special Sunday. And I want to invite you to celebrate this, not only today, but uh, all year long. And so you get to choose two different ways of celebrating. The first, as you may know, and if you've been here the last five, six years, as Rick said, I have continually won the lottery to be uh, the one who gets up and preaches the first end of the year. And this is International Associate Pastor Sunday. So, <laughs> see, you've already been celebrating this morning, I can tell. Um, so, during the season of Advent, it's a special time, uh, senior pastors usually get celebrated. Uh, routinely after the service, you'll see. Uh, a mom ushering young kids to take up gifts or crafts to them, uh, especially baked goods sometimes. You go to their houses and they are adorned with uh, Christmas cards from folks in the congregation and in the community. Uh, just people going and wanting to make sure that, that they celebrate the senior pastor, they celebrate the season with the senior pastor. Uh, and so they get their time and then this is our time. And so if you want to adopt this practice of celebrating as a family, as a community, International Assistant Pastor Sunday, here's a few practices to consider. Uh, One, uh, whatever baked goods are left at home, you just give those to the assistant pastor. Uh, Or two, if you got some novelty gift or something that when you opened it on Christmas morning, uh, you really, the first thought was, this is gonna clutter my home. That's usually something people will wrap and then give to the assistant pastor. And then finally, it's a great time with New Year's resolutions in mind to offer to the assistant pastor uh, your opinions on what they really need to work on this next year. And so those are just a couple of things that if you want to celebrate, you can do that today. But there's another option. And again, it's not just to highlight for this morning, but as you're going to see in the sermon, uh, it's really something to celebrate always. and, And that's The other thing we celebrate at the end of the 12 days of Christmas and the first Sunday of the new year, and that's the Feast of Epiphany. And you know what it is to have an epiphany, a revelation of sorts, right? Well, uh, the Feast of Epiphany that occurs usually on the 6th of January, it also goes by another name, the Feast of the Three Kings or the Feast of the Magi. And the epiphany, the revelation, the reason why it's celebrated is because it's this revelation that God's coming to the world isn't just for the people who are waiting for him, the Israelites and the people of God, but God also came to the Gentiles, which is the rest of us, 
and to all of the world. And he didn't just come into worship and come into their ceremonies and their celebrations, but he came into all of life to reveal himself and to reveal the fullness of God and the fullness of our humanity by coming and shining a light in there. On New Year's Eve, uh, we were gathered together on our block with some families, and there are, there are two different neighbors of mine who have a Puerto Rican parent. And my dad was born in Puerto Rico, and my grandmother was Puerto Rican, which makes me a Puerto Rican. <laughs> and I remember learning, and we were discussing this this week, because in, uh, in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church, and then especially where the Catholic Church became the center of the culture and community. So like in Latin culture and Hispanic cultures, Three Kings Day, the Feast of the Three Kings, the Magi Epiphany, is just as big a deal as Christmas is. And it has traditions and practices that go along with it. I remember my grandmother telling me about writing letters to the Three Kings, telling them what gifts you wanted them to bring when they arrived. Right? And so that's kind of a, a more biblical picture than what some of our culture practices, but that idea that we're going to celebrate and share gifts with one another. So, so ask for something, right? Reach out. And then what I loved more than that was the night before Three Kings Day, you would leave out cookies and candy for the kings that when they would arrive, the magi, they would have something to, to, to eat. But then also underneath a chair, you would leave carrots and grass for the camels. And one of my neighbors shared that one of her fondest memories growing up was to come down on the morning of Epiphany and to see the grass was all chewed up and the carrots were all chewed up by the animals and then spit out and thrown about. Another practice that's, that originates with this is the king cake. And you may know the king cake from Mardi Gras. Right, a sweet treat where inside the cake there's a baby figurine meant to be the baby Jesus. And that if your slice of cake reveals the baby Jesus, it is meant to be good fortune for you for the year. So you want the baby Jesus to appear to you in your cake, hopefully before you put it in your mouth. And it's this idea that's celebrated, and you can see how those traditions actually fit the story a little bit better, but it's this idea that the revelation of God is what's to be celebrated, that God has come near to you, and as we'll see in our passage today, that you can feel it, touch it, see him, hear him, follow him, relate to him, he listens to you, you can be with him in very tangible ways. And then similarly, like with the cake, when you receive the baby Jesus in the king cake, it's not just good fortune for you, but you are invited to participate by becoming an epiphany, a revelation for others, by being generous, by giving gifts, uh, and, and, you know, most simply to be the one who makes or purchases the cake for the next year. But the revelation of the baby comes to you and then you're transformed and you share your life, your good fortune with those around you. I want to submit to you that this idea of epiphany and the revelation of God coming to you that this is what is meant to be the center of our story, 
the center of our thought life, the center of our feelings, the center of our actions towards ourself or towards others. This idea, what we celebrate in Epiphany and Three Kings Day, is meant to be your whole life, to celebrate it all year long. You can celebrate me all year long if you like. I won't stop you. But to celebrate God's coming to us all year long. The beloved John, Jesus' apostle, writes this letter to the church 50 years after Jesus has gone to heaven. And yet in the passage, he invites his audience to experience the fullness of life, the fullness of God's life with them, to feel it, touch it, possess it for themselves, to share in it with one another, and in doing so, experience mature joy, complete joy together. So if you have your Bibles, flip on over to 1 John, or you can follow along in the worship guide as it's printed there. And I'll read for us verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now join me in prayer. God, as we turn this chapter to a new day, a new morning, a new week, as ordinary life sets back in, and this new year filled with hopes and possibilities, we come into worship knowing that if we would see you and hear you, if we could touch and feel you and know you like this, we would know eternal life. We would have something to share in together, not just with you, but with others around us, and our joy would be made complete. And God, there's not one of us that doesn't need you more today to feel you and know you anew. And there's not one of us that doesn't need some more joy. So Lord, would you help us all to be those lucky ones who bite into the cake and see and know you that in our study and time today, in time of worship, we would be transformed by your eternal life for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so some of you I know have a New Year's resolution to find more places to talk about Greek philosophy. And we're going to check that one off right here at the beginning, the first Sunday of January. When John writes that which was from the beginning, and when he says later on, we proclaim to you the eternal life, his audience, the Greeks and the Jews alike, would have heard something specific. Uh, They would have known that he was about to make a claim about something here. So uh, the Hebrews and the Greeks, just like you and I, we all have this idea of goodness that's somewhere, 
Okay, so goodness and intentions for goodness, what the world should be like that God establishes long ago, or the way in which the world is the destination for the world, where the world is going. So the, the origin point, and then the telos, the direction for where goodness is. We all have it for our lives, and that's why we make resolutions in part. It's why we try to buy meaningful gifts. We want to expand and grow. We want to make our joy more complete. We want to grow to be more gracious, generous. We want to be more happy. We want to be more loving. And not just us, but we want to experience that from others as well. And even though you may not think of yourself as this Greek philosopher or or, or this first century Jew, you've been shaped by these ideas as well. The opening to our constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We hold these truths to be foundational, self-evident, to be from the beginning and to be the direction that we need to go towards as a country. Certainly for you, you have ideas of where you have been and where you are going. And we all have these ideas and definitions of goodness. For the Old Testament Israelites, they define these two things as right now, the present age, and then the age to come. And the age to come in the prophecies was all about healing and freedom, sight to the blind, justice, mercy, grace, Love, milk and honey, all these kinds of good things. Anything that could be good, anything that is, there's a great perfect version of it in the age to come. And if you read those prophecies, you will see that the reason why those things are good is because they come from God. They are his attributes, his character. And they come because in the new age, the age to come, God will bring them. Like the three kings bringing the gifts, God will be present with us. But for the Jews in the present age, there was darkness. There were shadows. There was bondage and longing. There was pain and grief and loss and anger. Similarly, for the Greeks, they defined these two things. And you know the answer to this. How do they define them? The real and then the shadows or the forms. So what the Greeks taught was, yeah, there is a power that created the universe and everything is going back to it, but it's impersonal. It's not knowable. It's all those good things, milk, honey, grace, generosity, all that, but there's just no person attached to it. And we're going to get there, but we're not there right now. So those things are real, but they cast a shadow, a form that we see. And if we will get close to those forms, those shadows, we can lean into them and then we can begin to see something about what's really real, what's possible, what's ideal. And this idea from their Greek philosophy is the foundation of science and mathematics and all education. That there is something that we could know. We know it in a shadow and an illusion, but we need to get closer to it. Now, for the Israelites, we would only get close to it when we arrive with God, when we practice our way and get to God. Or if God should come to show up to us. And for some people, for those that were worthy. For the Greeks, the practice was called Stoicism or aestheticism. It was about setting aside the shadows, not settling for the shadows around you, but just longing and transcending to get to the real. 
But they have this problem, and it's the same problem that we do. The more they focused on what could be real and out there and truly good and perfect, the less knowable it was right now. And the more they knew or explored something right now in the present, the less good and true and permanent it became. So when, God, when, when John writes, that which was from the beginning, that which is eternal, came and we held him and touched him and heard him, he's making the claim that the eternal life and power and goodness and generosity and every, everything you can imagine, belonging, peace, has come into the world and it's graspable, feelable, knowable, receptible. That's the claim that he makes to us. The word that the Greeks had was logos or logos. And it was that divine secret of goodness, the word through which everything was made and everything will be perfected. And John says that word of life we proclaim, the life appeared and we proclaim to you now eternal life. The, the second thing that we have to grasp about this concept of eternal life, when we think of that, it's usually patched together with 1970s and 1980s evangelism. And it's, well, do you know where you'll spend eternity if you died today? Because your life is going to keep on going, so what's it going to be like? But eternal life in, for the Israelites and for the Greeks wasn't just about time. It wasn't just chronological eternal life. It was the perfection of life. It was perfect joy and peace and kindness and truth and goodness. So when we think about or read through the promises of eternal life and the claims about eternal life, if you just think about time after you die going on in perpetuity, you're missing the point. Because John's claim is that that goodness that you thought was only going to come in the end or was only at the beginning, and we just have the shadows we suffer through now, he says, I saw it. I felt it. It loved me. It fed me. It walked with me. And he can walk with you as well. Greek philosophy and the, the primary thought of it was known as Gnosticism, where we get, you know, agnostic from now. And the whole idea of Gnosticism, just like for the Greeks, was that there is something good, there may be a God, but if anybody says they know about it, they're wrong. We can't really tell anything about it, just that it's there. And most of us live our life with God that way. That God has a plan for our future. That he knew things before time. That he created the world. That there is purpose, but we just can't know what it is today. And sometimes we hear sermons about it and feel a sense of that purpose, or we sing songs and feel that sense, or we practice life together, and we feel a sense, but then it leaves us. And what John is saying is this invitation to have that life on a more permanent and maturing basis, all the way through life to completion, that we would grow in sharing and participating in that eternal life with God and with one another.
many of my friends, and I've had this experience here at church too. So the friends of mine I was talking about on New Year's Eve, they love the celebration of Three Kings Day. They may even read the story with their kids, but they do not believe uh, that I know of. They've, they've put faith behind them to a certain degree. But they are drawn to celebrations like this. Just like Christmas Eve and Christmas time, uh, we love to see folks come in from the community to come and celebrate with us. They're reminded of something from their childhood, traditions and practices. Uh, they're reminded they receive some, some sort of hope, some sort of good feeling, some sentiment of being together, coming back to church. But then it just doesn't last. And again, for us, I'm here you know, 45, six Sundays a year, and it's like we have it, and then Sunday afternoon comes. And it doesn't last. Something sentimental happens, but it may not be tangible. I may not walk with it or with you in it in life because we're constantly, there's a competition for what we're going to call the center of our stories, right? All the stuff we think about, we feel about, the way we make decisions. There's competition for what is at the center of the story. So you're here in the center of our story together. We're talking about Jesus, but then we're going to leave and the center of our story is going to be traffic, the rooms needing to be cleaned, work coming tomorrow, all this stuff is going to try to escape back in. But we love spaces like this because it has some experience of transcendence together. I was talking with my dad about the metaverse and the world where we all live online, like in the matrix, that kind of thing. And I was talking to him about my experience. What does it mean to be human? It's not just the social or cognitive engagement. This may be crass, but for me, it's like doing church the last year online versus in person. There's something meaningful and moving when we sit together and nobody punches me. When I experience the grace and generosity that you're not just yelling at me to stop talking because I'm not going anywhere. Like there's, there's something about shared spaces together that this feels a little bit more human even than when I'm just off by myself, when I, when I get in the car and go home. And philosophers have described spaces like this, uh, they've defined it in terms of thinness and thickness. When we celebrate Christmas, God feels a little bit more human and a little bit closer than maybe the rest of the year. When we come into worship, God feels a little closer, a little bit more active than he does when we're sitting at the office. And so it's in these spaces that that distance between the shadow and the real becomes thin. And if you ever see a shadow of something that's far away, you can't really make out what it is. But the closer you get to it, the closer the real thing comes to the shadow, the more you can make out exactly what that shadow is reflecting. But also there's that thickness. Grief, pain, loss, despair, COVID, mass, all this stuff. Are there any two worse words than virtual learning for people right now? Right? When those things come in, it doesn't feel thin. It feels really thick. I love watching true crime shows, and I watched the show about the first serial killer in Korea. It's just it's associate pastor. Sunday, you got to learn a little bit about me. And, and it was the first serial killer that they had ever had. And, and all these investigators talked about going to the scene, and the scene just felt evil. 
the darkness was thick. The ideal and the good was far. And we all know what it's like to experience that. Whether in conflict or in need, in grief, pain, loss, sadness, fear, confusion, doubt. We know what it's like to feel that thin space, the real, the ideal feels close. God's love, his grace, and then it feels far. Because our world is in this tension and this flux. Because everything is competing for that space in the center of our stories. Everything is competing to become the thing that consumes our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. This week with my kids, we felt the thin and the thick space. We gave them more presents. Hey, they're, hey, they're watching at home. Bailey and Kelly, I'm going to talk about you. And you know you said this, so don't be mad at me. We gave more presents than ever before. And two days later, they said, yeah, but we didn't get anything we wanted. <laughs> and I would have felt bad, but I mean, that same thing's true in my own heart as well. And so they got tired being out of routine and playing with the toys, playing with the neighbors, and then it's raining and they're trying to figure something out. And then just one day, um, disagreeableness is at an all-time high. And Meredith and I, our ability to deal with it, to match it, was at an all-time low. Because the center of the story and what was drawing our attention and demanding our actions and allegiance was their weariness, their frustration, their waywardness, the immaturity of thought, that they can't remember all that they have in gratitude and in hope. And so they need the attention now. They need us to fix it. Their story is all that matters. And so for many of us, what's at the center of our story is that, the needs of others. The needs of others in the world around us. And, and sometimes it's done out of, uh, it, sometimes it's real in that it's done out of love and care and concern and things like that. But then sometimes it's done just because we want to please them or we want to get away from them. And then after we realize that it's not all their fault and that they were weary and they were tired, and the option there was just to tell them the truth intensely until it changes their behavior. We all know what it's like to feel tempted that way. And then after that, when the burden wasn't on them and we could have revelation and grace, compassion for them, then it turned on us. Because we realized it was our own lack of energy and patience and kindness out of which we were not able to be with them in their pain. Because of our own weariness of traveling and taking care of my family and taking care of each other and all these kinds of things. And it's this competition that we live in constantly. What is real and at the center of the story? Others or ourselves. Because if it's them, I've got to bend over backwards to fix and appease them. And if it's me, they got to get out of my way. And oftentimes when we hear the story of Christmas, when we think about 
moral living, we think about how to live a better life, a more full life, it's usually in this dynamic. Get rid of the bad people, even if you gotta run them over, or I'm the bad person, I need to quit running people over. But what John is getting at here is that in the middle of this shadowy, dark place that's in between, this messy, thick space, the ideal, the real, the light of the world, the word which was in the beginning through which all life was made and all things will be remade and nothing was made except that which was made through him has come near. This, this analogy is throughout the Bible in the New Testament. At Jesus' death, the veil that separated the perceived presence of God and humanity is torn in two. In the Old Testament in Moses, Moses wants to see God and God says, you cannot gaze upon my glory, it'll destroy you. But veiled in flesh, Jesus has come to make thin that thickness. To bring the real and the ideal into now. And John says, I felt him. And I heard him. And he loved me. And he rebuked me. And he changed me. And we write this so that you can share in that with us. The most mature people I know, the most loving, gracious Justice oriented, however you want to define the better people, the more mature they are, you find that at the center of their thoughts and their feelings and their actions, it's not themselves and it's not others. It's this story of God coming in to bring the truth, to shine the light, to bring healing and freedom to them and to others. The invitation for you this year, and I want to encourage you to practice this this year. We proclaim what we have seen and heard so you can see and hear it too. And it's an active thing. It's not just you see it and you hear it once and then you're done. But it's this active abiding in what we've seen and heard with him. So that you can have fellowship and joy and that that real, that goodness, that perfection can come into your experience. Notice who's at the center of your story. This is a great time to reflect over the last year to think about plans for the, forward, for the future. Who's at the center of those plans? For all of us, it's going to be our, ourselves or the people around us. But mature, uh, mature, loving, joy-filled people, it's neither at the center. The center is the story of God coming to us. Not just in the ceremonial places, not just in the people that were waiting for him, not just in the successes, but in all of life. God is a God who comes near. So the next time you're weary and getting ready to run somebody over, we practice this imagination. How is God coming to me? Let that shape and move you and how you respond to that person. When somebody is getting ready to run over you, when you're experiencing that thickness where evil or darkness or brokenness feels heavy, how can God meet me here now? How is he coming to me now? How can I feel him and touch him and receive him 
now. I've seen my life change when the amount of time I'm fixated on myself or on others gives way to him coming to me to give me a new thought life, a new feeling life, a new order of actions. And I've seen it with others here as well. Being a pastor is a perpetually thin space. Anytime I meet somebody new and tell them what I do, they always, always respond the same way. So if they're a Christian, uh, they just, they just like, they have a church, they just walk away. But if they're not a Christian, they always say, well, I'm not that religious. I'm like, but I didn't ask. But there's this thin space where they feel that something transcendent could be close. And maybe they're on the hook and they feel that superstition and we, they somehow have to give an answer to me. I just forgot why I went there. Yeah. I think what I'm going to do, all right, so we're going we're gonna to move to close with this. That idea of the thickness and the thinness. The thinness is about your receptivity because he's already come. The promise is that he's already coming. And sometimes it takes work to get through that thickness. Sometimes you have to name the anger, the grief, the sadness. You've got to process what this is really about. But with him, the space is thin because he's come. And he's always available to us. The problem is we're not good at reading ourselves and what's at the center of our story. We all practice this Christian Gnosticism where God created the world, God's going to fix the world, but this is about me. This is about my record, my behavior, about what people do or don't do for me. That's all determining whether God's real or not or, or whether my life is good or not. And so sometimes we think we're living this life where God's at the center of our story and God coming to us, but really it's something else. It's a, a God that we've made for ourselves. And that's why the best way to practice and experience this, to let God be at the center of your story, is to do it with others. The word that's here, that's, that's uh, translated as fellowship, it's not just togetherness, right? Churches love having a potluck and saying we had fellowship together. But fellowship is more like that person crying with you at the hospital. And it's like the person bringing you food when you can't get up off the couch. And it's the person mowing your lawn when you can't get to it. And it's the person listening to you when life has fallen apart. The, the word koinonia is about sharing. And that's where, when he says, what we've seen and heard, we're sharing with you, we're proclaiming to you, so that you may have fellowship, that you can share it with us that we can have this mutual sharing together, that we would live a story that's not the story about me and it's not the story about you, but it's the story of God who comes near to give us a maturing joy on the way to completion. If we want to live a good life, if we want to have an eternal life, a big life, a, a joy-filled life, a life, however you want to, describe it and size it up. If you want to have that life, other people are not your obstacle to it. And nor can you get there on your own. But that life has come near in Jesus. When we have seen it and we've heard it and we tell those stories to one another 
and when we tell the stories where we can't see it or hear it or feel it, and we enter into share in life together, then our joy will be complete. What's at the center of your story today, right now, this week? How can you share in this story of a God who comes near with God and with others that we might have joy? Think about that.